You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 50. Hey there, folks. I'm Chris Lester. Welcome to the 50th episode of The Raven and the Writing Desk. This episode marks the end of the first full year of producing this show. It's been a fantastic ride, and I'm looking forward to another year of bringing you my fresh new fiction. Before I go on, I want to give a special thank you to everyone who has supported me and this show over the last year. For everyone who has called the voicemail line, or sent me emails, or left reviews on iTunes, or shared this podcast with others, or bought my books when I released them, thank you. You guys are making my return to podcasting fun, and you're encouraging me to keep writing. Most especially, I want to give a huge thanks to everyone who has made a monthly pledge to support this show on Patreon. You guys have turned this show from an expensive hobby into a successful line of business, and that means I've been able to continue producing this show consistently, instead of using my free time to take other paying work. By helping me out in this way, you're not just keeping the podcast going— you're making it possible for me to work on the next crop of Metamore City stories. With your support, I've written over 200,000 words in the last year, and there are lots more to come. Thanks to your help, Mel and I made it through my season of unemployment. We are now settled in Wisconsin, we both have good jobs, and our creative businesses are growing. We couldn't have done this without you, so from the bottom of my heart, thank you so, so much. Now then... Let's get down to business. Here is this week's story. Today I'm bringing you the first part of Chapter 13 in my Metamore City novel, Things Unseen. If you haven't caught up with this story yet, you can find the beginning in Episode 24 of this podcast. Otherwise, follow me along to this week's story recap. Catherine Catane and David Silverleaf have had their first meeting with Ezekiel Kapler and Julia Mathias, two of the surviving members of the group that illegally entered the Telvari Rift Zone. All of the survivors have been transformed by the Rift's arcane energies, which warped their bodies and gave at least some of them powerful psionic abilities. Julia became pyrokinetic, constantly producing intense heat all around her, while Ezekiel gained the power of apportation, an extremely rare ability that allows him to teleport objects to himself if he knows their location. Even though their bodies have been mutated by the change, Ezekiel in particular is triumphant. In his mind, this just proves that the rift is a source of incredible power, just waiting to be used. Unlike Hal Raines or Misty Halloway, Ezekiel doesn't seem to be in any hurry to get back to the rift, he also seems to be unaware that two of his companions, Hal and the shuttle pilot Bernard Travers, have both died as a result of their misadventure. Hal and Travers were both being consumed from the inside out by magical symbionts, and apparently so are Misty and Julia, but Ezekiel seems to know nothing about them. Julia arranges a private meeting with Kate, without Ezekiel's knowledge. She wants to know what happened to Hal after he left them several days ago. Kate tells her about Hal's death, then asks why Ezekiel is unaware of the magical symbionts or the danger they pose to Julia and the others. Unlike Misty, Julia's symbiont lets her tell Kate the truth. The symbionts hid their existence from Zeke because they know who he is and that he will inherit control of the rift someday. 
They don't want to take any chances that the power of the rift will be used for destructive ends, so they forced Julia and the others to keep silent, leaving Zeke ignorant of the danger they're in. Kate tells Julia that the Lightbringers are willing to try to help the symbionts if they will agree to a meeting with the Lothanasi field commander, Janus Starson. To Kate's surprise, Julia has a very positive view of the Lightbringers, and she readily trusts that Janus and his people will do whatever is necessary to keep them safe. The two women part company, and Kate goes to make arrangements for the meeting, fervently hoping that Julia's faith in the Lothanasi will not be disappointed. One brief content warning. This chapter contains explicit sexual content, so if you're listening to this with your children in the car, you may want to save this one for later. Things Unseen A novel of Metamore City Written in red by Chris Lester Chapter 13 The man calling himself Thomas Finch fulfilled all of Morgan's expectations. He arrived promptly and looked just as devastatingly handsome as when she had first set eyes on him. The restaurant was classy but not pretentious, and it served quality food and wine. Morgan could no longer subsist on mortal food, but she enjoyed the taste, and her body could use the mass as raw materials. The dance club he chose, Parallax, was not one of her usual haunts, but the crowd was lively, and the DJs were competent. Finch himself turned out to be quite the dancer, bold and sensuous without being overbearing. Most importantly, at no point did Finch bring up the subject of work, or the files Morgan had promised him. They did talk about science and medicine in a general way. Finch's interests were broad and eclectic, and at one point they got into a spirited debate on the subject of gender roles in human evolution. But he never brought up their bargain— never made Morgan feel like the means to an end. She found herself greatly enjoying his company, and she sensed that he would have gladly spent the evening with her even if he'd had nothing to gain from it. When they stood at last in the garage of her apartment building, Morgan took Finch's hand in hers. "'It's been a lovely evening, Thomas,' she said, smiling. "'Thank you for sharing it with me.' Finch bowed and kissed Morgan's hand, chastely and only across the knuckles." The man had learned his lesson. The pleasure was sincerely mine, milady. I'm glad to hear it. Now, if you'd care to come up to my flat with me, I believe I have a few things to show you. Finch grinned. Lead the way, ma'am. She did so. Once inside, Finch looked around in open admiration at the spotless, symmetrical beauty of Morgan's apartment. She had been doubly vigilant about cleaning today, polishing the faucets and pulling out her laser level to adjust the picture frames. It wasn't perfect, it would never be perfect, but it was close enough that a human like Finch couldn't tell the difference. "'Can I get you anything?' Morgan asked. "'Tea? Brandy?' His eyes glittered. "'I suppose that depends on what you're in the mood for.' Morgan clucked her tongue. "'You've been leading me around all evening. Don't tell me you have no preferences now.' Now we're in your domain. 
Finch gestured at the room they were standing in, then at the corridor that led to Morgan's room. In the kitchen and the bedroom, the woman's word is law. Morgan rolled her eyes. Gender rolls again. I would never have taken a man who looked like you for a conservative. Finch fingered a lock of his long, golden hair. Oh, don't label me just yet. I'm full of all sorts of surprises. A slow grin spread over Morgan's face. The reports you wanted are on my desk. Come have a look. She backed away into the bedroom, beckoning with one hand for him to follow. Evan followed Drowling into her bedroom. Her desk stood at the far corner of the room, case files neatly stacked next to the computer. Two freshly printed autopsy reports sat on top of the stack. Have a seat, Drowling suggested, gesturing at the leather desk chair. You'll want to make sure everything you need is in there. In truth, Evan wouldn't understand half of what he was looking at, but it would fit the Finch persona for him to review the files. At least he could make sure the right names were on the autopsy reports. He sat, savored for a moment the surprisingly comfortable chair, then leaned forward and flipped on the desk lamp. The records matched the names he had been given, and when his eyes caught the crime scene photos, he forgot all about personas and pretense. Evan had thought he'd seen enough amazing things by now to be permanently jaded, but nothing had prepared him for the sight of Bernard Travers with his chest cavity blown outward, or the mutated and withered body of Harold Raines. Gods, he thought. No wonder the syndicate wants this information. The blackmail potential alone would be enormous. He went back to the beginning of the first report and began reading in detail, looking for whatever useful data he might glean from amidst the medical jargon. After a while, Drowling came up behind him and began rubbing his shoulders. It felt wonderful, and Evan made appropriate noises of encouragement, but it wasn't enough to tear his eyes away from the reports. Sometime after that, she began running her hands lower, over his pecs, across his chest, down to his solar plexus. Everything to your liking, she purred. Her breath came hot against his ear, telling him that she'd already satisfied her bloodthirst for the evening. Thoughtful of her, that. It all looks, uh, ah, oh. Gentle nibbling on his ear drove language from his mind. Arms tightened around him, fingernails flexing against skin. A growl rose behind him, throaty and possessive. I think that's enough work for one night, don't you? Drowling said. Evan all but threw the reports back on the desk and spun the chair around to face her. She straddled him, hiking up her dress in the process. Evan abruptly realized she had removed her underwear. She ground her hips against him, letting out a mule of pleasure. Then she grabbed two thick fistfuls of his hair and pulled him forward, drawing his mouth to meet hers. She kissed him ferociously, sucking at his lips and tongue, nipping at him with her human teeth. She kept control of her instincts, though, and while her canines were still sharp, they never extended into fangs. Evan kissed back with the desperate intensity of a surfer riding a ten-meter crest, or a man on the back of a raging bull. Caught in the grip of something vastly powerful and primal, he could either commit himself completely or be crushed by it. 
Drowling's hand started clawing at the buttons of his shirt, and he quickly helped her unfasten them before she tore the fabric in her enthusiasm. She must have noticed his concern, because she let out an amused snort and rose to let him wriggle free of his clothes. As he did so, she unzipped the dress and let it fall to the floor. The rest of her body was every bit as captivating as her face, her pale skin unmarred by any blemish, sag, or wrinkle. And unlike Evan, she probably hadn't paid for spell sculpting to get it to look that way. (sighs) Pretty boy, she purred as she settled down atop him once more. Her dark, hypnotic eyes tried to meet his, but he wasn't falling for that again. The protective amulet warmed slightly against his naked chest, its magic shielding his mind from her control. She hadn't really been trying, or the amulet would have gotten a lot hotter. Evan decided he'd better give her something else to think about. Pushing the chair back against the edge of the desk, he grabbed Drowling firmly around the hips and levered himself to his feet, lifting her in his arms as he did so. His hands settled under her ass, and she made a pleased sound as she wrapped her legs around his waist. He carried her over to the bed, kissed her deeply, then lay her on her back before settling down atop her. He lavished kisses across her neck, chest, and belly, worshipping her with lips and tongue. Drowling wrapped her fingers in his hair and guided him, gently leading him downwards to the neatly trimmed patch between her legs. He went to work eagerly, lapping and nibbling and sucking, until she bucked her hips and cried out beneath him. He would have kept going, but she pulled on his hair and dragged him back up the length of her body. Her mouth met his, and her tongue thrust inside him. She held him there for a long moment, sharing in the taste of herself that still lingered on his lips and tongue. When she pulled back, her fingernails flexed like claws against his scalp. Fuck me, she commanded. The words came out in a ragged gasp, but there was no mistaking the authority behind them. Evan's body needed no further encouragement. Drowling gasped as he entered her. The magic that had shaped Evan's body had a number of advantages, and he was better endowed than most. But shock turned swiftly to pleasure, and she wrapped her legs around his hips to draw him more deeply inside her. He thrust slowly at first, not wanting to risk hurting her. After a few strokes, though, her grip on his hair tightened, and the nails scraped his skin again. Harder, she growled. Clenching his jaw against the pain, he obeyed, putting extra force into his next few thrusts. Her breasts bounced and wobbled as he pounded into her. Faster! The amulet burned against Evan's chest. Desperately, he increased the tempo, ramming into her with all the strength he could muster. Drowling moaned and growled and shrieked. Some of the noises coming from her didn't sound remotely human. She shuddered beneath him, Once, twice, three times, her inner muscles gripping him so hard he was sure it would leave bruises on his cock. The pace was so intense that he lost much of his own sensitivity, the overstimulation pushing him further from his own climax, even as it kept him hard. Seeing the wild hunger in Drowling's expression, Evan thought that was a good thing. He didn't dare stop. Evan had an athlete's body, but he was only human. An interminable amount of time later, he collapsed on top of Drowling, his muscles burning.
I, c I can't, he gasped, rolling off and onto his back. No more. I'm sorry. Drowling let out a low, languid purr. Darling, there's no need to apologize. Gods, I haven't been fucked like that in years. She rolled over to face him, reached out a hand and ran it over his abs. I feel a little sorry for you, though. All that and still no go. She lightly stroked the length of his cock in emphasis. It happens, he said resignedly. This wasn't the first time he'd had this conversation with a lover, and it had gotten old. Don't take it personally. It's not a measure of my interest, I promise you. Most of the time I count it as an advantage. Hmm. Drowling kept up her gentle teasing, as Evan's cock twitched and grew again under her hands. All right, I won't take it personally. Still, maybe you just need another kind of stimulus. She looked up at him, her expression mischievous. Up for trying something a little different? Within reason, Evan said, dryly, and if it lets me lie here for a while, what did you have in mind? In answer, Drowling reached under one of the pillows and produced a set of handcuffs. Not the fuzzy pink novelty kind, nor the cold metal of police issue. These had thick leather adjustable straps with heavy D-rings and a set of connecting chains in various lengths. It was the sort of gear you could only get from a serious bondage shop. The fact that Drowling even had such toys spoke volumes about her interests. A little flutter started in Evan's stomach. He licked his lips. Oh. It came out as a very quiet little sound. Drowling grinned wickedly. I promise you can stay on your back. Evan closed his eyes, feeling that heady mix of fear and arousal run through him again. He shouldn't do it. It was stupid. She was a vampire, for God's sake, and she was asking him to let her tie him down like a trapped animal. She could take off his amulet if she wanted. The protections on it might burn her fingers, but she could do it. She could do anything she wanted to him. It was a complete surrender of control. I... I want a safe word, he said. And your word that you'll let me go if I say so. Drowling nodded easily. Of course. Swear it, Evan whispered. Her expression sobered. She looked down at the straps in her hands, and maybe at the too pale skin of her hands themselves. She looked back up at him. I swear by my name, Morgan Elizabeth Drowling, she said, the words low and formal. I will do you no harm, and will release you when you ask it. Evan was no wizard, but he felt a tingle in the air as she spoke the words. Oaths had power. All right, do it. Drowling smiled. You're sure? Evan licked his lips again and nodded. I want you to. Drowling's smile widened, and she began fitting the first strap to his wrist. What's your safe word? Lawsuit. Drowling barked a laugh. Lawsuit? Evan shrugged. It would make you stop, wouldn't it? 
Drowling tied Evan to the bed, one strap on each wrist and ankle, and began to play with him. She was surprisingly gentle, lavishing affection all up and down his body. She was unquestionably in control, but Evan never felt threatened by it, and the excitement of being in her power turned out to be exactly the stimulus he needed. She coaxed him to three orgasms over the next hour, which he was pretty sure was a record for him. At last, with Evan feeling exhausted but happy, Drowling settled down atop him, her head on his chest, her legs intertwined with his. She looked content. Pleased with yourself? Evan asked. Mm-hmm, Drowling said. Any plans to untie me yet? Not yet, Drowling said, lightly. I sort of like having a pet boy on a leash. I thought maybe I'd keep you a while. Evan's stomach fluttered again at that. You'll have to take me out for walks sooner or later. I'm not litter box trained. Mmm. Drowling traced a fingertip lightly over one of the four tattoos inscribed on his chest, an intricate pattern of Luton tribal glyphs. Can I ask you a personal question? Evan thought about it a moment, then shrugged. I suppose. Drowling looked up at him. What's your real name? And that's where we're going to stop for this week, folks. So, Morgan has seen through Evan's disguise. Will she be able to get him to talk? Will Evan escape from his pleasurable captivity? Or has Morgan turned him to her side? Find out next week. Aldous Huxley said, Words can be like x-rays if you use them properly. They'll go through anything. You read them, and you're pierced. So, please put on this lead apron and hold very still. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 3,614 words this week, over the course of 4.75 hours, for an average writing speed of 761 words per hour. As of Friday night, when I'm writing this script, I've gone 11 days without breaking my chain. On Monday, I stayed up late and finished my new Metamore City audio drama, Rafa Kaliri and the Ghostly Bride. By Wednesday night, I had actors for all of the parts, and they're currently reading through the script and preparing for our show at Balticon. If you're coming to Balticon this year, we'll be performing on Sunday night, May 29th, at 6 p.m. If you're in the Baltimore area, why not come out for the day and join us? It'll be a blast, and the Mount Washington Room has plenty of seats for the show. For the rest of this week, I've been working on getting back up to speed on The Lost and the Least. As I write this script, I'm about to start writing Chapter 20. I jumped back to Chapter 10 and read through to the end, making small edits and fixes as I went. This is what Dan Sawyer calls the spiral method, and it's a good way to reload the story into your brain so you can keep writing. One way this podcast has changed my writing is that I'm now writing shorter chapters. 
Instead of three or four scenes in a chapter, I'm only doing one or two, and I've reduced the target length for each chapter from five or six thousand words down to three thousand words. That will make podcasting the novel easier, since I won't have to split my chapters in half to make them fit into a 30-minute show. I'm also hoping that, since the book is going to be long, the shorter chapters will make it more approachable for readers. Just one more chapter is a lot easier to tell yourself when the next chapter is six pages long than when it's 12 pages long. And now, the feedback. Bethany Bostetter sent me this message on Facebook. Hello, Chris. I've noticed that the entirety of the Metamore City story is huge and sprawling. I have an unreleased and horribly unfinished project that is also huge and sprawling. My question for you is this. How do you deal with the enormity of the task before you? And how do you decide when each tale gets priority, when all are important? Great question, Bethany. There are times when the massive world of Metamore does start to feel overwhelming. I am by no means an expert on finishing massive epic projects, though I've started several of them in my career as a writer. So seeing Metamore through to its conclusion is particularly important to me, because I want to prove to myself that I can do it. This podcast is part of how I'm keeping myself on track toward that goal. Because I have an accountability system to keep me writing, I'm going to continue producing content, and sooner or later I'll reach that finish line. There are a few tangible things that I've done, or am doing, in order to help with the project. First, and most importantly, there's the writer's wiki. I use wiki.net. I'm a prolific world builder, but I'm very haphazard about it, and when I'm first starting to develop a story universe, my mind is going in a hundred different directions at once. Wikis are perfect for people like me because they have a built-in search capability and the ability to do quick and easy cross-referencing between topics. Anytime I create important new details for the story world, I try to go and update the wiki so that I will remember those details the next time that I need them. Now, in the case of Metamore, I've also had the help of our city librarian, Mildred Cady, who's done a lot of work on streamlining and indexing things in the wiki and capturing a lot of the little details that I didn't think to update at the time that I wrote those stories. If you have someone in your life who can help with stuff like that, they are fantastically valuable. Second, I've plotted out a central story arc. I chose which characters and which plot lines were most important, and I put those in the center of the story universe. There are lots of little side stories in Metamore, and I make more of them when I need to get inside a character's head, or when I just need a palate cleanser from working on the big arc. But there is a main story, and it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Making the cut laid the background for it, Things Unseen introduced the main protagonist, Catherine Catane, and I have plans for three or four more books after that. I know where the story ends, and I know the important plot points on the road to get us there. I'm using those story moments as landmarks to help me navigate through the space in between. I don't know everything that's going to happen with every character, and I don't know exactly how all of my characters are going to reach each of the landmarks, but I have enough information to keep moving forward. At the end of each story, I stop and take stock of where my characters are in relation to those landmarks. Sometimes I've ended up in a place I didn't expect, and then I have to chart a new course to get back on track toward the eventual destination. 
Sometimes a new character I've introduced opens up new possibilities somewhere else in the story. That's what happened with Miriam Bakhtivar in Making the Cut. Sometimes two characters meet and make friends in one story, and then that opens up the possibility for one character to use the other as a resource to solve an unrelated problem further down the road. It's important not to get too married to your story outlines. Just keep the destination in mind, and if you've accidentally created a better way to get there, don't be afraid to go for it, even if it means leaving behind some of the landmarks in the middle. That's all the advice I have for right now. If my perspective changes a book or two down the road, you'll probably hear about it on this show. If you'd like to leave feedback about the show, send your thoughts in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is Fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And if you want to help me keep making this show and get cool bonus content, sign up for a monthly pledge at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. All of these links will be in the show notes. That's all for this week. Come back next time for more new fiction fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2013 and 2016 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.